Disclosure. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hello, everyone. Ben Keedy with the Wealth Crypto Podcast. Today's guest is Peter Lazaroff. Him and I actually met at uh, the Snappy Crack and Jolt conference earlier this year in May. He is the chief investment officer for Plan Corp out of St. Louis, Missouri. And he was recently named to Investopedia's top 100 advisors this year. So um, definitely knows his stuff. He's got a great perspective on crypto and Bitcoin. He's a little more maybe contrarian than what I think most of the listeners to this podcast are. He tends to take a little bit more of a skeptical view on it, which I think is incredibly important. You need to be able to think rationally about both sides of the argument. So without much further ado, we will get into it. Boom. There we go. We're live. Peter, what's up? Hey, Ben. Thanks for uh, inviting me to do this. Totally, man. I'm happy to have you on. I'm super curious about kind of how you think about the topic. But um, maybe just to start, why don't you give everyone kind of, you know, your uh, statistics on what you do, kind of what your role is currently, and um, we can go from there. Yeah. So I am Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp. We are based in St. Louis, and we manage about $6 billion for clients all across the country. We have a couple satellite offices, but headquarters are in St. Louis. So my role, obviously, in overseeing the investment committee and overseeing the management of that money is a pretty core function. The other piece, and I think this is becoming more and more true of CIOs all over the place, is that I'm somewhat of a communicator for the firm. Sure. So. Yeah. Communicating internally for educational purposes, of course, but reaching out to clients, you know, being that megaphone when things look gloom, uh, to be yep. the voice of reason, uh, but also just to be an advocate for the brand and and be mm-hmm. out at conferences and podcasts like yours and, yeah. and spreading spreading the word that we just want to help more people and uh, we think there's a lot of people out there who could use our help and so that's you know what we're in the business of doing for sure yeah no that's that's great man. Um... You know, obviously, as a chief investment officer, you're looking at investments day to day. But the goal of this podcast really is about, obviously, crypto and how it plays into greater wealth management. And, you know, I wanted to have you on particularly because you kind of take a little bit more, I don't know if you call it a denier sort of viewpoint or more just kind of like not you're not like drinking the Kool-Aid as fast as uh, maybe a lot of other people are. So. Maybe you could just kind of start with how you as the chief investment officer and I guess also fiduciary too for your client's assets. Like, how do you think about this new asset class and why do you maybe have a little hesitation around it? Yeah. And so I wouldn't, it is hard to really identify where do I fall. Um, I think I am very uncertain about a lot of things. And the first time I ever wrote about Bitcoin was pretty shortly after Thanksgiving in 2017 because so many people were talking about it. And I said, okay, yeah. like it's time to address this because all yeah. it was, it was one of those moments 
where like many other things investing, where the type of people who are asking me questions about it, I'm like, okay, so here's like a big fad. And you can, you can see that in the price action. For sure. And, um, yeah, I ended up writing at the time, which is one of my longest blog posts. It was maybe like 4,000 words. And I remember it was the first time that Michael Kitzes had linked to my blog. And, oh, wow. I, uh, yeah. And I mean, that's <laughs> happened a bit since, but this was, you know, I feel like one of the things as an advisor is that, you should have an opinion on it. I don't think you can just put your head in the sand. And in a perfect world, that opinion is informed with facts and data. And when I go back to 2017, I remember, well, and so actually, let me even circle even further back than that. The first time I had a client interaction uh, around Bitcoin was 2014, I think. So that's pretty early. That's super, super early. And this engineer showing me his Bitcoin on his phone. And candidly, yeah. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And I went back and read about it. I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. But it's still super dumb that he thinks it's worth something. I, I, had you know, same, I had the exact same experience. I'll tell the story when you're done, but same thing. Yeah. Well, and I think it's sort of, I familiarized with myself with that. I was trying to understand, Yeah, you know, he was a smart guy. And you know what I came away with is, okay, like cool concept. Like I understand why you have at the time, what was, I think a couple hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin, yeah. um, but you know, it's held on. It's worth a lot more than that now, but yeah. <laughs> back then I'm like, okay, like it's kind of cool. Like, but like many new things yeah. where adoption is important, you know, it just looks like an interest, like a hobby. And I left it at that, but by the time it was 2017, by then I had done a lot of reading and uh, listening. There were some great podcasts um, that Patrick O'Shaughnessy had put out, like called the Hash series. And oh yeah, yeah. It, and had read you know the papers uh, for Bitcoin and for Ethereum, and had read a book or two, and been to some presentations at conferences. And so by then I had like a real opinion, and it wasn't that interesting. It was just simply that you know this stuff is either worth a ton or it's worth absolutely nothing. And that's sort of where I stood in 2017. And by the next time I really wrote about it was 2021, I think. Maybe it was 2020. And okay, it's very clear that it's not worth zero at this point. But yeah. what is worth a ton? Like, what is that number? And mm-hmm. I think the big issue I have and you know, sort of why it comes off as being anti-crypto is a lot of the reasons, particularly if you hone in on Bitcoin, but other currencies as well, other coins as well, I should say, the cases were just nonsensical to me. Like they had, and people would make them till they're blue in the face, but you can drive a semi truck through the holes in them. And so I think a lot of my thing is that, um, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast. Yeah, no, you're, you're As fine. I say, like, I'm not anti crypto, I'm just anti bullshit. And so yeah. ultimately, you know, I think it, it has come off to those who are um, really like they're evangelists for the ideas. And it's like, okay, that's all fine and well, but like you either missed your basic economics course or you just are saying what the last guy said. And so that's really where the the angle comes. And and I think where I sit today is from a place of skepticism that I will grant, um, but more so of a place that I equate where we are with crypto and saying what is good, bad, or otherwise, probably to be on par where if you and I had met in like the late 1980s or early 1990s, aside from the fact that we would have been little children then. But let's imagine that, you know, we transport back then. It sort of would have been like me saying to you in 1990, Snapchat is going to be a great investment. Now, think about that. We didn't know 
really what the internet was going to be. We didn't know that we were going to have these little computers in our pocket. We didn't know that social media was a thing. And I sort of feel like picking winners right now would be akin to doing that. So I am skeptical. I don't think Bitcoin or Ethereum, I'll just single those two out, are worth zero. Yeah. But how much are they worth? I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think that people, you know, where I come off as skeptical is I just typically hear cases for different coins that don't actually stand up on any facts. And so sure. uh, I think there can be a place for it um, in particular thing control. Um, but also you had a first Bitcoin exposure story. I, I want to give, I oh, kind of want to yeah, hear yeah. that too. <laughs> Cause I like, I went like way past that point now, yeah, but no, I, it's, it's been sticking in my head. I'm a little curious. To, no, no, it's all good. Um, so one of my buddies was a computer science major in college and we all lived together and one of his projects was mining, you know, one of the original Bitcoins is like an engineering and computer science thing. And he came back and we're all playing FIFA, you know, having beers and stuff. And he, you know, starts telling us about this Bitcoin and we're like, cool, Ty, like nerd, like, who cares? So like what does this even mean? So hopefully I'm, I've never followed up with him on this, but hopefully he had at least a few. Um, Cause obviously they're worth quite a bit these days. So yes. Um, but yeah, that was my very first interaction with it and then similar to you i really kind of started tracking it again um 2017 particularly in the fall and that was when i was a financial advisor at morgan stanley and you know obviously i was hearing about it one of the funnier things is that cnbc at the time thought it was you know a, like a ponzi scheme and maybe some people still think that today but cnbc these days is very like bullish on crypto it would appear so um it's funny how things changed yeah well and they added the fact that it gets reported on, like that its price action gets reported on within the same breadth as the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ yeah. suggests that it's here to stay. Yeah. The one thing I kind of feel like um, that earlier in my career I was exposed to were the gold bugs. And, oh yeah, you know, yeah. like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> from basically the day that gold futures started trading to present, gold has just been a horrific inflation hedge. But a gold bug used to think it was a good inflation hedge, a good deflation hedge, a good recession hedge, a mm -hmm. good expansion hedge, a good like it had a case for everything. Yeah. And that's the one thing that's struck me is that a lot of the people, you know, Bitcoin, I feel like has a has an image problem. They need to get rid of a lot of the people who are its advocates. It's almost like the most the people advocating the hardest are doing it the, the greatest disservice because they're lacking a lot of context. Um, they're not necessarily people like you, Ben, who came from the financial services industry and still today is working with financial advisors. And so there's a lot of pieces to this that are complicated. And at the end of the day, it's not black and white. But, um, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but ultimately, like, there are some people who want to do it. And then, so there's some conversations you have to, like, make, allow them to make a choice that is both meaningful to them, but also is yeah. not going to harm their life. And that's the yeah. real hard thing. If you think there's something that can help you get rich quick, like we're naturally drawn to those things. Go, go play blackjack. <laughs> right. No, like if should. that's sort of how you're investing in these things, yeah. yeah, you might, you might get, you might get rich quick. You might also lose everything. And yeah. it's such a speculative asset. There is so many cool things going on in the crypto space and just in general applications to blockchain. I mean, blockchain was around and maybe you've talked about this on other shows, but like blockchain was around before these coins were. So it's not like that's you know all that new, but like 99% of what's going on in the crypto space to me seems like nonsense. Whereas like 1% is 
like you see things occasionally. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah, yeah. That, that'd be cool. And I suspect it will have some meaning in our lives for decades to come. I just have no idea how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've brought this up on other podcasts with people who listen, forgive me, but I kind of, you touched on that earlier too, is like, it's so early that it's kind of like the internet in the nineties, right? Like we had no idea that social media or, you know, pocket computers are going to be a thing. So it's definitely tough to try and sift through the haze and look for projects that are going to be around and have staying power. But, you know, the ones that do, you know, Intel, Microsoft, Oracle, like all those companies are still worth a ton of money and still great business. So, yeah. But like take Cisco, which was the biggest company in the world. And it like basically flatlined since, I mean, like, yes, it still exists and yes, it's still a big company with a lot of revenue, but like as a return, as an investor, I mean, that's sort of what people miss sometimes is what's already priced in. Like what are the odds priced in? And, I'm not saying it's like efficient market hypothesis, you know, at its best uh, in the crypto yeah, yeah. space. I think it's maybe debunking a little of that. But ultimately, saying that it's important and that it's a thing doesn't mean that the returns are good. And yeah. most of how I hear people describe Bitcoin specifically would suggest to me that it's a long-term real return of zero type asset, which, you know, okay, inflation hedge, that's super volatile. Sure. Um, Again, those are based on like the arguments for Bitcoin. I'm not saying yeah. it will because I don't know if any of those arguments will play out. But like, if it's a store of value, well, that is definitely what a store of value is. Um, it's not it's, yeah, as in it's yeah. not returning anything, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the case, the only case that I sometimes hear for it that doesn't necessarily have the a real return rate of zero, like probabilistically being the most likely outcome, is sure. that it's a collectible of sorts. And but people don't like that either. Like, well, don't call my Bitcoin a baseball card. I'm like, well, I'm not, but uh, it's an asset class that you collect yeah, and that you hope somebody pays more for. It's, it's a supply demand thing. Like, there's only yeah. so much supply. And it's, it's kind of like uh, like fine art in that sense, almost. You would right. technically classify that. as Maybe a that's what I should say instead yeah, of yeah. baseball cards and beanie it's babies. It's like a bingo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. More like a bingo. And you know what? It is because it is a beautiful idea. It yeah. truly is intellectually tantalizing. But, um, and you know, like if we weren't U.S. citizens and we struggled to move money from place to place, like we couldn't just go to Western Union to move yeah. money across border lines, like, okay, there is yeah. a real use case for this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that does taint a little of where I'm coming from is like, yeah, I don't have any use for what Bitcoin offers me right now. Yeah, yeah. And I can see though, but in other countries, it really does. The real challenge that I think that specifically will face is that, do you think the government is going to let, like, they're not going to regulate the heck out of something that threatens their own home currency and like China well, so or that's, the U.S.? You know, that's, that's sort that's of the, the big rub, right? Like, I mean, I've kind of been fascinated about central banks the last couple of years just because obviously they have a huge influence on markets and money and inflation and all that. But I guess I'll maybe put the question to you. Like, do you think that the Fed has been doing a good job over the last 10 years? You could argue that, you know, QE and low rates and all this stuff has been horrible for the people that they're trying to help the most, you know, mom and pop savers and, um, you know, middle class, lower class type people and all the benefits have accrued to the top and people who know how to play off what the bank is doing. Like, where do you kind of fall on the, I guess one of the core Bitcoin tenets of, you know, you can't trust government money long-term. They're just going to inflate it away. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
inflation is a given. Now, was the Fed in trying to inflate debt intentionally? I would argue in 2007, it felt more that way than it did in this last go around. Um, I think they ran the wrong playback. In hindsight, I think they ran the wrong playbook for that type of recession. Yeah. I do feel like in 2007, if they hadn't stepped in that way, that you are looking at a Great Depression. And so I thought Bernanke, followed by Yellen, did a great job. Um, not saying Powell and company have done a poor job per se, but I do think they ran the wrong playbook just sure. now. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Fed history in general is how experimental experimental yeah. it has been. And I think yeah. a lot of people miss, I mean, one of the reasons the Great Depression was so bad is the Fed had no idea what they were doing. They did the opposite of what they should do. And they learned from it because the next time that situation arose, we yeah. did what we were supposed to. Next time we have a pandemic. So <laughs> we won't just, shut down everything. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the Fed started like a decade after the prior pandemic. Um, you know, so now they know. Now they know what it means when you turn off the economy and switch it back on, what type of response. So, you know, it's it's really easy to be critical of them. Um, sure. I would argue that you'd have to then throw in the fiscal response as well to that. And I say that from a hopefully bipartisan view. I'm I'm yeah, yeah. I don't really like getting into politics stuff, but like I just like facts are facts. The, a lot of fiscal money, a lot of monetary policy was all thrown at it. Yeah. And yeah, we had a bunch of inflation. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think generally speaking, Bitcoin only holds its value if it doesn't fluctuate. So like I, even though the government can inflate away the debt, I can reasonably take my paycheck in cash in U.S. dollars mm-hmm. and feel pretty comfortable that one, the U.S. government is going to exist and yeah. two, that it'll pay its liabilities in part because they can print their own money. Yeah. Uh, whereas if I'm in Argentina, well, dang, I have no idea if I'm going to be able to take my money that I earn for my job. Like I don't want whatever their currency is. I blank. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, they're, I understand that basically if people are inflating the, you know, or basically decreasing the value of the U S dollar, another alternative is just to own stocks. You know, I mean, it's boring, but it takes advantage of that. And those corporations then move, they point their, their, uh, they point their guns. That's a harsh. I was trying to find a way to avoid that. They point their attention towards different countries where there's more growth. Um, yeah. I, again, Bitcoin or any coin in terms of being a protector against that, it's sort of like gold. It's the same argument yeah. gold makes like, well, there's a limited supply of it. And if the dollar gets, uh, devalued, then our gold will still be worth what it's worth. Well, maybe sure. unless, you know, what we're kind of seeing to some extent, although I'd be interested in your opinion is aside from the fact that a lot of the, the big, big run up there, the last several months of, of, the crypto world was was credit infused. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a big benefactor of zero percent interest rates, which is not oh, a yeah. natural um, place to be. So, if there's an opportunity cost, it sort of changes the equation yeah. for everything. So, I think you see part repricing of risk plus leverage, and, and that's how we are where we are. But like yeah. the idea that you know, bored apes are selling for as much as they were like. I mean, that's like classic yeah. tulip stuff, you know, yeah, um, yeah. but the coins, some, you know, especially those that are like smart contracts, they have real utility. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? Can we really accrue value to the person the way that like HTTP should have? But, mm-hmm. um, and most of what the applications seem to solve for can all be done on web two right now. So like, where is that leap? And here's where I feel like I really am not an anti-crypto person is I still believe that that leap will happen. 
I really do. I think that the human race is innovative and we are always going to find a way to do things better. Sure. And betting against that is betting against human ingenuity and is a really poor bet by not owning cryptocurrency. I don't think you're betting against it per se, um, because I would think corporations, again, as long as they like money, they're going to find a way to take advantage. Yeah. They'll incorporate it when it makes sense for sure. So boring view, but yeah. Yeah. Well, so maybe from, it's like part of the reason I wanted to do this and you've touched on it various times is just to, uh, give, you know, financial advisors a way to kind of think about the space and some like actionable Intel on how to approach it. Right. Because, you know, in my day job, I sell software to advisors, as you well know, and oftentimes this conversation comes up and I, I guess most people are kind of like 50, 50 still, you know, and that's kind of across the board. You might have like a 55 year old who's super into crypto. And then you might have a 35 year old who's like, I, I'm not seeing it yet. So maybe like, a hypothetical scenario, like I'm a client of yours and I really want to have some exposure to the space. Like how do you practically sort of field that client request while staying true to how you sort of interpret the space and manage? Yeah, it's a really good question. A lot of it I handle in a manner that isn't all that different from someone who wants to invest in dominoes or someone who wants to invest in some private equity fund. I mean, I think a lot of it is very, especially when it's a narrative driven investment. Um, you know, if there's no fundamentals to base off of, mm-hmm. they'll run through a series of questions. I, I often want to sit down with the clients and if I can't, then their wealth manager will try to run through this playbook. But you know, what's your return objective for your investment? Mm-hmm. What's your time horizon? Yeah. How does this fit into your financial plan? What is your thesis for making this investment? And how will you determine if you're right or wrong? Um, you know, can you tolerate severe losses in the process? Because as we've all seen, Bitcoin's fallen 85% or more on several occasions. Oh, yeah. What's your expected range of outcomes and what probability would you assign to each scenario? So see how I'm getting like more and more serious into this and like you know, how would how would your how will your investment change your life in a bullish scenario? How will it change if the investment goes to zero? Yeah. And usually you really uncover and a lot of times, I mean, if I run through those questions with people and I don't have to put much input into myself, a lot of people realize that they're getting into it for the wrong reason. And they realize that they don't sure. know anything about anything. So that's yeah. my, that's honestly, when someone says they want to, I go, okay, well, let's talk through some of these things because we got to make sure this is objective. Because if you're just trading emotionally on this, then yeah, you're at a casino. And that's not true of just Bitcoin or any coin. That's true of any investment. I mean, yeah. theoretically, theoretically, everyone who is deviating from an investment plan should ask all these questions. So that's sort of the first step. And it's a lot of it's trying to do like deal with regret minimization. But if they're still like, yep, let's do this. The way that I think about it, and and this has changed a little bit as as market capitalizations has (laughs) changed across all asset classes. But I used to say like, hey, the global stock and bond markets are worth about $200 trillion in Bitcoin was worth about a trillion dollars. So like if I'm an asset allocator, which I am, a starting point is probably 1 trillion divided by 200 trillion. That's half a percent of the portfolio. So I might yeah. say, okay, like I market portfolio. You know, if you're really in charge of managing people's money and, and building and doing portfolio construction, you have to recognize what's the market portfolio. And it would have said about half a percent. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you want to put half a percent in? Go crazy. Go wild, like, you know, like whatever. (laughs) That's the thing is like in order to, in one of those questions I asked kind of 
near the tail end of us rattling things off is like, okay, so what are your expected range of outcomes? What probability would you assign to each? How would your investment change your life in the bullish scenario? And unless you put a irresponsible amount of your net worth into a single investment like that, it's not going to change your life. I mean, you would have to put an irresponsible amount in. And I think that there are people who got rich who are not people who are successful. You know, I'm also working with a different subset. I'm not saying people who got rich weren't successful, but I'm working typically with somebody who has had a successful career or came for money. They have a money already existing. Mm -hmm. And so for them, you know, I'm generally, and this is not just Bitcoin, this is across the board. I'm more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. Yeah. And a lot of that drives how I view every investment opportunity. Um, There was a private, you know, we meet with these private investment companies all the time because it's just part of the due diligence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You do enough of these interviews and you hear certain things a certain number of time, but there was somebody who put a Swiss cannabis company in front of me and they were like convertible notes and like, okay, I'm not saying like, like look at this. the alternatives like there's a lot of other options for private yeah. investment like why this specific one like this is kind of random and yeah. oh by the way like the amount of money you're talking about represents like 20 percent of your balance sheet so like why why yeah. do that much so when i usually am talking to clients who are interested it's about controlling the bet and yeah. i am intentionally using the word bet yeah. Maybe, maybe I will switch my word to invest as time goes on. I, I hope so. Um, I hope so for humanity. I hope so for the space. And then it's going through those questions to set expectations so that you're not just gambling and speculating back and forth over and over. Like yeah. make a bet, have a thesis, know when you're wrong and move accordingly. That's what the best, honestly, if you read the best traders, anything that they put out book-wise, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, they, know you know, they, they know when they've lost. Right. right. I know when, yeah, they know, they know when to say I am wrong, you know, and sometimes you have a good outcome, even though you made a bad decision or you made a good decision and have a bad outcome. It's important to know that too. So that the next thing that you try to speculate on, you, uh, you know, remember how good or not good yeah. we all are at predicting the future. But I feel like it's a similar playbook that I run through when someone wants to buy an individual stock and it's all fine and well to buy an individual stock, just like it's all fine and well to go buy Bitcoin, just have reasonable expectations. Yeah. And I would say that if you, this is the one thing that I do sort of draw a line on is I sort of think like 5% of your portfolio, no more than 5% should be in things that are deviating from some long-term plan. And that's not like a static 5% allocation. Cause like, if you lose all the money, you don't get to put another 5% in there. Yeah, you know, like yeah. you get to, you get a starting point, yeah. go wild and express yourself and treat it like a hobby. Um, you know, I don't have this type of money, but like, I love fantasy baseball. I'm not going out and buying a f- baseball team. Like it's a yeah, different yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although maybe I would, but you know, yeah, yeah. Well, di- different dollar. Well, amounts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, shoot. I mean, there's like so much to impact there. Um, so like, okay. So like continuing this example, say this, client uh say it's me really just wants to do this and it's like yeah sure you know i hear you like half half percent i don't want that i want to do you know i don't know five percent whatever five to ten something like that yeah yeah um do you guys have a view on how to actually go about like getting into it whether it's like you know owning it directly so buying from coinbase or some exchange and then holding it in like hot or cold storage or are you more okay with proxies like um you know etf out there or 
Yeah. So the ETF that trade futures, um, aside from them being, you know, not particularly cheap. And also the idea that like futures are not the same as direct ownership. Um, you know, I think that's sort of a consideration. Um, I, I, candidly, we've told people who, if you're going to do it, do direct ownership, but we can't facilitate that. Yeah. We have looked into being able to facilitate that. It does require, there's a couple, there's some really good options where if individual clients are putting upwards of a million dollars into Bitcoin or Ethereum, it, it, uh, the cost structure looks what, pretty good. We don't have that many clients looking to put a million dollars into one coin or the other and we can't yeah, so. put them together. So like, I mean, we've looked at other platforms. Um, like I think what OnRamp has built is pretty user-friendly and would be yeah. a good option, especially for keeping eyes on what a client has. Cause at the end of the day, I don't want, this is one of the reasons I don't want people to think I'm anti-cryptos because I don't want people to feel ashamed or make me feel like I'm shaming them in owning something. Yeah, yeah. We want to know everything about their financial life so we can help. And so I think, you know, when we've had people buy it, we're like, well, Hey, can we see statements and we'll update the balance sheet? So we have eyes on like where it is as part of the plan, sure. but we don't like facilitate ourselves. And I, again, kind of like looking at the ETFs and the, the ETNs that are out there, I, it's the easiest option, but there are definitely why, trade-offs. Why pay, why pay the fee almost, right? Like, Yeah. And I think at some point, um, you would think that the SEC will approve something that takes direct ownership. More um, spot isn't, ownership ETFs. Yeah, that isn't like futures-based or, you know, isn't like these uh, closed-in funds. Yeah. That, you know, have had their own set of issues. But um, honestly, when I was looking at the closed-in funds, I was not anticipating what has happened recently. So that wasn't really the issue to me. Uh, mm-hmm. It just was, it was like a 2% fund. That was very expensive. Yeah. So I think everyone would love to see a more diversified product offered. And there's obviously a lot of fun companies that have filed for such a product. Um, yeah. Yeah. Someday it'll come to market. And I think that really will change some of the equation. I do think though, that demand is a lot lower, you know, like anything, when price runs up, demand goes up when yeah. price runs down. It's the only thing like, you know, shirt prices go up. We don't all run out and try to go buy shirts. Like we wait till they're on sale. Yeah. But yeah, no. as it, I mean, I honestly, I have, I've only had, I was going to say, I haven't had a, a crypto question all year, but that is not true. I actually had one last year or uh, last week. And it wasn't even really that it was a question. It was more like, Hey, so like, do you do it? That was the question. Not like I want to do it. Um, it's from a prospective client. And I yeah. gave him a lot of what we're talking about now. And he's like, Oh, that's interesting. And it kind of, that was the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the demand has kind of, definitely waned. Yeah. Yeah. So you touched on OnRamp as a solution for your guys' business to, you know, if you wanted to get into it, that would be something you would consider. Are there other companies out there that, you know, you've taken a look at that might help? The only one that, that we've looked at in earnest are Fidelity and OnRamp. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think had client demand been higher, we would have pursued probably additional due diligence, but Ultimately, I think, you know, and, and this isn't, I, I'm not necessarily making a formal endorsement of OnRamp, but I would say that like what I saw would allow an advisor to facilitate meaningful conversations about their holdings in crypto. And there were options to even trade it. I don't think we would have gone down that route. I don't think we yeah. wanted to deal with that liability. And I think you're seeing that from most advisors where, you know, a lot of it's a liability thing and, 
if there is client demand, if there, I mean, I will say the pricing when we looked at OnRamp was unbelievably reasonable. Uh, okay. And so that was not the issue. We, but yeah, yeah. giving even how cheap it was, we still didn't move forward because there just wasn't enough demand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we have 1,500 clients. So, I mean, it's not like we don't have a lot of clients. 1,500 clients across like 44 states or 45 states. And yeah, I mean, there, there were some inquiries. But again, you start having these conversations even in a, in a totally open-ended, like a therapist would. You know, yeah. and, you, and they just come to their own conclusion like, oh, wow, I actually... Like as they hear the reasons that they're saying out loud, they're like, wow, this is actually a really dumb reason to want to buy it. And I yeah. don't know what I'm talking about. And my advisor has not stepped in to help support yeah, my yeah. case. So like, yeah. okay, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And that's, yeah. that's where a lot of it went. And that's not necessarily the goal. Again, the goal is just to help facilitate people feel confident about their money. And sure, you know, if someone talks themselves into buying it, great, that's fine. Um, I can live with that. Yeah. So do you guys have like a five, 10, 15 year perspective on this and that maybe you might need to have a more kind of active approach to it because certainly the younger generations, you know, so I'm, I would say core millennial, I'm 32. Um, but it would appear the generation below me is very engaged with it. And I mean, my, my personal take is that I do think it at a minimum, Bitcoin will be a store of value long-term and protecting the power of your dollars. I think everyone's getting a very real current sort of look at what that means, right? If you're holding cash or down 10% from a year ago, right? Yep. So I think there's going to be just some sort of life awareness that happens with people around their money, particularly. And I I personally, again, believe that this is just going to continue to be a thing. So do you guys kind of take a view that as the practice matures and you guys move further along, you're going to have to have more of a, I guess, kind of, you already have a take on it, but more of a solution around it and cater to it more than you would say today. Well, if it's a store of value, I don't think we would own it because like the Japanese yen is a store of value and we don't own it. Um, You know, it's, it's, if it's, if it's really coming in from a currency perspective, I would say, and and I just don't see it. I mean, it, I nothing points to it being a store of value, a unit of account, a medium of exchange, largely because it's so volatile. If it if its volatility drops to that of a normal currency, yeah, then you then you got something. Um, I think as a diversifier, anytime you can add an asset that zigs while your other assets are zagging, now that has interest to me. Yeah. Um, now the same could be case could be made for gold. Gold can be diversifying. It does take an extremely long time for that diversification to pay off in the compounded returns. And in my experience, coaching like clients, they know they should be diversified, but they don't actually like being diversified because being diversified means you always own the loser and they hate the loser. And the loser sometimes has to lose for like a decade. And most people don't want to stick with the loser for a decade. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations, not so much recently, but over the prior decade or so I've had on, why do we even own international stocks? So if people can't oh, yeah. stick with international stocks yeah. because of diversification, how the heck are they going to stick with something else that's a little bit harder to understand? So that's part of the issue I have. Yeah. But I think as things mature, you know, my view is 15 years from now, um, you know, it is very difficult to predict where this space will be. I think a best case scenario is that it is treated like 
like gold, the way that gold is treated like a store of value, but calling it digital gold. I just think that's the best comp or fine art. I think that's a good comp as well. I mean, heck, if you have a portfolio, like there's a client that we work with who has a spirits collection that's like seven figures large. Yeah. Well, that spirits collection is in a raging bull market this year. So like his whole portfolio is down, but his, his, uh, spirits seller is out. I know. And so like, there are stuff where if it diversifies, there's a real case. The question becomes, how much does it incrementally improve your outcomes? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, kind of going back to, I'm more concerned about implementing a bad idea than missing out on a good one. Yeah. Well, if I think that through more traditional asset classes, I can earn a return that makes people's financial plans work, you know, then I'm probably going to stick with the simpler solution. For sure. But I, you know, I will never say never. I think there, it just, it's so early and it could be something that we're not even, that not a soul is talking about that makes this all relevant. And so, and that could happen in the next 10 or 15 years. Harder for me to believe in five, Uh, but you know, there's going, you know, one of my big concerns, I always tell people when they come and talk to me about the market and why they're worried about it. Now, this is in a period like before the market has crashed. So basically everything before 2020, because everybody's been worried about the same like handful of things since 2020. But I always was like worried about like a major cyber attack, like that China just decides, hey, we're just going to log into all the credit card companies and delete all their files. Like, okay, that's really scary. Hmm, yeah. Who could fix that? Yeah, I think the blockchain could fix that. Does that yeah. mean any of these coins will do that? Probably not because Visa is building their own blockchain. So it's sort of like, you know, I think the technology is real. That's such the cop out. Every advisor, that's what made me annoyed when I wrote the latest article that I did in 2020. And even in 2017, people would say, well, I love the technology, but I'm just not so sure about the coin. Pretty cliche thing to say. Um, However, it's very clear, like 98% of the coins are just complete nonsense Ponzi schemes. Even like the CEO, founder of FTX, on Bloomberg radio is talking about how they're Ponzi schemes, which was super weird, by the way, for yeah, you know, FDI, you know, that's like a bizarre thing for that guy to come up and explain how these contracts work. And he's basically explaining a Ponzi scheme. And then the host says, so you just describe a Ponzi scheme. He goes, yeah, I did. He goes, I could try to explain it a different way, but I mean, it is what it is. And I'm like, what are you kidding yeah. me? And the fact yeah. that FTX is, is advertising on my fortune cookie fortunes, like, come on. You yeah. shouldn't have to advertise this much to make something go up. But yeah, uh, my view could be changed uh, by more data. There's not a very big data set. Even something like emerging markets, um, you know, it's only had a data set from, from since the 1990s. Like 1990 is the first full year of the data set. It started in the yeah. 89. That's even not that big of a data set. So yeah. when you think about that, like give me 40 years of data and I will make much different comments about things than sure. I could possibly make today. It's just, it, even though we even have near, we, we have a decade of data basically. And so, yeah. uh, but the, it's just, it's almost like that data isn't, it's just not even remotely good enough. It's not um, even, uh, well, it's maybe barely. It's not like representative, not, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, it, Data's, data changes over time as people adapt to it. For sure. Um, and so I would say like, you got to throw out the first handful of years of data. They don't really mean anything to me, at least. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 40 years of data, maybe I'll change. I'll start singing a different tune. That tune may be in the same key, but it may not be. Um, you never know. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's maybe pivot a little bit here and just kind of, we can 
begin to kind of wrap this up, but sure. what, what do you kind of think about like markets going forward? Like how, however you think about them is whether crypto is a like part of it, stock or, market or, or crypto or traditional, like what, what's your kind of take for moving forward? Like, what do you think people should be thinking about? Um, well, when it comes to stock and bond markets, valuations scream pretty clearly that returns over the next 10 years ought to be lower than they historically have. Yeah. Um, I suppose the question is, should I care? And when you look at 30 year, like rolling 30 year returns, they don't deviate very much to the long term average. So I think honestly, like 10 years, yeah, I could get 10 years a long time, but that's technical to me. Like you start talking about long term investing at 20 years. That's when I start seeing like data patterns play out and yeah. empirical evidence becomes more robust. So like I do see lower returns in the next 10 years and bonds, that stuff's just math. Like, it's just the starting yields. Like there's no doubt about it. The yields are what they are. Mm-hmm. I 10 year bond today, whatever that yield is, is definitively going to be your average return over the next 10 years. So that's pretty simple, but with stocks, um, yeah, I think lower expected real returns is, is very likely. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that people might have to work longer than they thought or spend less. Um, they can account for it in their financial plan. On the other hand, if you're, like you and me in 30 years from retirement, although maybe we'll ride off in the sunset early because we did a good job saving or investing or something. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, like, but 30 year rolling returns are all pretty dang close to the long term average of, like, for stocks, global stocks, 7% real return on a 30 year time horizon. Yeah. So, I think there's a part of that where it's like, it's important to know that it's coming. It's important to, for me, to prepare our clients for the inevitable downturns. And with the bear market, in many ways, now that we're down 20 plus percent, to me, things are less risky. Um, yeah. I think that generally speaking, once you're in a bear market, if you look one month out, three months out, 12 months out, and definitely like three years out, five years out, returns are better. So yeah. like if risk and return are as closely related as I believe them to be, and risk is sort of the cost of earning higher returns, well, you've now effectively in assets of all kinds paid in the form of risk, you might as well stick around for the return. So I think it's sort of a low returns make people do silly things. So I think the next decade is a big behavioral game. Um, And for young people, I think the biggest thing, millennials are the biggest, make up the biggest group in the market right now, which I think is kind of interesting. If you take the financial news, which mostly still speaks to the baby excuse me, the baby boomer generation, when I'm talking to someone who's a baby boomer, um, sometimes when they have certain views, I'm like, yes, but that perspective doesn't really account for what Gen X and Gen Y thinks. And they are the ones who are making decisions at major institutions. They may not have all the money, but yeah, I mean, I'm 37 and I oversee $6 billion. So yeah. like, you know, my opinion does matter. Um, now there's also other people who are Gen X and Gen Y who are overseeing much bigger amounts of money. And I think that's important. And because it's a young group overseeing all the market flow, I think we're well positioned to ride out the next 10 years. I think that if you're a retiree, this is going to be a tough 10 years. Like retirees do not have a, they've been dealt, depending if you've retired in the last like couple of years, or you were about to retire, you've been dealt a difficult hand, one that's not insurmountable, but you probably need to work longer or save more or spend less in retirement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what I'm, what I'm kind of hearing there is just that like your timing really matters, right? So if yeah, you're it's like luck. Me, you can't control the timing either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, so like, say you do get into a kind of tougher conversation with somebody. How do you approach that? Like, how do you kind of, I guess, do the psychologist sort of emotional aspect of saying, Hey, this is our hand type thing. Well, hopefully, you know, you can do it through data. So we're building financial plans that makes these conversations pretty objective, Yeah, but you know, usually you aren't seeing people's financial plans, uh, statistically failing. Um, you know, even if you have a probability of success of not outliving your money or not running out of money, you know, there's still a good chance that you're not going to run out of money. And, you know, you make, you build a lot of conservatism into the models and, you know, ultimately there, I have definitely worked with clients where we had to have the hard conversation and we just made it black and white and we show them, Hey, you need to cut your spending back to this. Look at what it does for results and look at what happens when you don't. And there's, I mean, you can be, there can be levels of bedside manner that are, are better than others, but for those who are going to be fine, regardless, you sort of point that out. I mean, you just let the data speak for itself and you say you're fine, even with a period of low returns. And when you're doing Monte Carlo analyses, like those account for a bad 10 year run, you know, oftentimes someone who has a 98% success rate, well, the 2% of the time it wasn't successful is probably when the model assumed periods of low returns right at the beginning. And if that's the case, like we'll adjust, but remember we built in all this conservatism and blah, blah, blah. But if, you know, and we're fortunate to work with a type of client who's pretty financially well off. So I'm, but there are probably a substantial part of Americans um, that aren't as well off. And you'd reference something earlier with the fed policies kind of benefiting or creating even more inequality financially. Yeah. One of the things that's pretty challenging about capitalism is it does make the pie grow faster than any other thing out there. Capitalism is the best for growing the pie. It doesn't divide the pie equally. That's not what capitalism is. And yeah, I'm not saying that that means we should trend a different way on the spectrum. It sort of is what it is. And I do often remind people that a lot of the policies in place and a lot of things happening benefit those who own financial assets. And we all in the room, you know, be in the room, like we all in the room are really lucky. Like yeah. we own financial assets and that is going to benefit us and you are going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, really like, you know, privileged statement to make, but that's sort of, you know, yes, how we coach through it. So that's, that's largely where I head. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, let's, uh, let's see. I got one more thing and then I'll just turn it over to you. If you got any closing thoughts or things you want to talk about, but, um, just as far as interesting things for the future, like what's, what are you kind of looking at from an investment perspective? Like what kind of gets you excited? What have you heard about? Like where, where does your, where does your head go? You know, uh, I'm working extensively on all of our fixed income models and okay. I'm not going to lie. It's probably not that sexy or interesting to talk about in pad- podcast yeah. world. However, um, you know, most people own bonds because they're just supposed to reduce volatility. However, I do feel like because bond returns are going to be so low that allowing your manager's flexibility is going to be really important. And most of bond management is just simple math. So you mm-hmm. hear people talk about like active versus passive and that yeah. doesn't actually apply quite the same way to bonds. Um, it's hard to make what I'm working on sound interesting, but that's probably the best I can do on that front. Um, yeah. You know, I, for so, me personally, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I'm doing a lot of content work and, and trying to find new ways to communicate with clients. So like we have an Alexa skill, we have a YouTube channel now and podcasts and blogs, and you go through all yeah, of yeah. the traditional channels and, 
And that, you know, there, there's some fun stuff with that. Um, you know, you and I, Ben, had a chance to meet face-to-face uh, at a place where there are a lot of people doing marketing stuff and yeah. some who are great at it and some are just getting started. And so yeah. I think a lot of our service level and stuff, you know, I naturally think it's the best and we're better than everybody else. That's what everybody <laughs> says, all these things. But at the end of the day, it's like how we spread that message and how we reach people that really makes a difference. And so there has been some like, there's a lot of technology internal build that I have been a part of in the past and that I see us doing in the future. And that might argue like our investing platform by design is always going to be boring. Cause I just think good investing is boring. Um, yeah. and so arguably most of the exciting stuff is happening on the marketing end or okay. in how we implement strategies to help sure. people behave better. Okay. Interesting. Um, that was not where I would expect you to go. Yeah, sorry. I, no. I didn't conform enough on that one. No, no, no. Um, I think that's interesting. So the most exciting thing for you, if I heard that correctly, is more just about how you can get your story and your practice and what you do in front of people. And that is incre- obviously increasingly enabled by technology. Yes, undoubtedly. And um, I think that there's no question that there are a lot of great advisors out there who don't know how to spread their message. Um, and there's a lot of people that, you know, get industry recognition just because they're better at spreading their message, but that doesn't mean that there aren't also a lot of other people. And so, um, you know, I think that's the stuff where, you know, if other advisors are listening to the podcast, you can learn a lot just from watching other people, um, seeing what they do. So what, uh, from plan corpse perspective, what are some cool things on the tech side that are maybe unique? to the wealth management space that you guys have done. Like you oh. said, Alexa, that for sure sounds. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We've been doing these Alexa updates for a while. That's pretty cool. I mean, the biggest thing is that we have, we're part of a startup company called bright plan that offers oh, financial yeah. wellness as yeah. an employee yeah. benefit. Yeah. And so like, I was a big part of that build out in 2017 and that continues to grow and like, going into other countries. And and so that's pretty wild, but also it allows us to have proprietary software internally. And I would say for me, like I mentioned, oh, there's some tools that I've been able to build just for PlanCorp new client orientations, as well as prospects that because I was forced to help build a piece of FinTech. And when I say that, I got to be perfectly clear. I don't know how to code. I did not build anything. I put a lot of rules on pieces of paper and then people much smarter than me built them. But understanding the logic of how to design that and then hand it off to somebody um, did allow me to start building other things in our practice. Uh, Again, whether it's to help with investor behavior or with client acquisition. Um, And so I think that the, the, the proprietary technology that we have at our disposal is by far uh, the biggest differentiator we have versus others in the marketplace, big or small. Okay. And is that something that, I mean, do you guys actively promote that as part of sort of your client acquisition process, or is that just something that people experience? It's a good question. I think it depends on the person. Some yeah. people really care about the technology. Sure. You really yeah. let them have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some people don't care. And, and honestly, when you build a piece of technology, sometimes it doesn't work. So sometimes you're like, let's oh, not talk about that right now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, like there are like bugs that come out. And so every so often, like things will twitch for a couple hours and you're like, got to shut it down just like any other app. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a mindset though, that has permeated the culture of the firm, which is interesting. Yeah. And so in that sense, you know, I think a lot of people, whether they are advisors coming to PlanCorp or they leave PlanCorp and go somewhere else, that's one thing I do hear is that the the 
technological innovation has permeated its way into the culture in a manner okay. because I've been here the whole time. Maybe I haven't noticed as much as those who again, arrive or yeah. make, make note of it. So that, that seems to be something. So that, that just, this is kind of, I guess, an, an aside for me, but I'm just curious, so like plain corpse, like growth strategy going forward. Um, obviously you probably want to bring on more advisors, more practices, right? Yep. Yeah, I think there's a lot of marketing. There's some of this, like, do you get some from wellness? And, you know, I think there's a point where we could, we've never really done acquisitions before, but if there was like, I think we would do talent acquisitions where if there yeah. is an advisor or a two advisor practice that has reached a point where they either want to stop all the administrative stuff and just be advisor or stop being an advisor and just do marketing stuff or administrative stuff that we yeah. might be a nice place for them to plug in um, and yeah. have that help fuel growth. So I think, you know, the organic growth of getting referrals from centers of influence and from clients yeah. and getting referrals from our wellness platform through the sister company, bright plan, um, you know, all kind of the normal marketing tactics at some point, you know, I think we, we've always kind of talked about mergers and acquisitions yeah. As if the it, it would again be less about buying someone's book and more about like acquiring some talent for the firm to help us continue to serve more people. Yeah, yeah. That, that I mean, I guess in an age of digital marketing, all that makes sense, right? Like people who can go out and have a brand are going to be valuable to you. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, anything else you want to kind of touch on here? Is kind of a way to wrap up or? Um, I wish I had something really wise to say <laughs> to close us on a strong note, but no, I mean, uh, I enjoyed talking to you and, and it's fun talking about this stuff. And I think people really need to have an open mind, uh, particularly on a lot of the topics that yeah. we discussed. Like if you can't be open-minded about it, it's going to be hard to be successful in any type of investing, regardless of the asset class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I think you kind of touched on it right perfectly at the beginning, just being a skeptic. Um, I mean, I personally can kind of attest to that as far as the crypto space goes, because, you know, you see all these lenders, um, Celsius being the most uh, recent explosion. Sure. Um, but but for like the untrained eye, right, people who haven't been in financial services and don't understand what like yields and stuff are like, I would see like, you know, earn 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 percent for staking, lending your coins. And it's like, how are you doing that? And, right. then, and then you just you can't really find any information on like how they're going about, you know, lending and what they're actually up to. So you just like that level of skepticism, I think is really valuable. And, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people committed to the crypto space might've learned that the hard way the last six months or so, but um, yeah. yeah and you're going to miss out on some good ideas being a skeptic, but you're also going to miss out on some really bad ones. For sure. And I think I, I would hope that the ones that you miss out on, on the bad side outweigh the ones that you miss out on the good side. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what is it? Warren Buffet says just don't lose, don't lose, don't lose. That's yeah, that's right. That's in that order. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, cool, man. Uh, I appreciate it. It's been great to have you. Um, welcome back anytime, but, um, yeah, we'll leave it here. Sounds great. Talk to you soon. Cool. All right.